The following podcast hosts trainees from Latin America, Laura Saavedra from Venezuela, Andres Gomez and Perla Kulunga from Mexico, Rafaela Muratori from Brazil, and Susi Bazan from Peru. The podcast is divided into two parts. In the first one, they will present current facts and realities of transplant cellular therapy and education in their respective country. In the second one, we discuss shared experiences and challenges. But most of the time, we will listen to them and learn from them. That's it. Enjoy. Yeah, thank you all for, for your participation, for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, it was basically, um, yeah, our, our first impression from the first meeting was that we don't really know uh, really good things about each other. So we don't have no idea what the reality in your, in your uh, situation was. And then there were these notes uh, that what your experience was and um that was that bugged me quite to be honest because i didn't think of that that this could be an issue and how would i face this if i hadn't this let's say different experience here so we just wanted to, to share it and to show it because i think there are there are a lot of trainees and physicians and even patients out there who don't really know um, that people with the, maybe with the same education and with the same uh, knowledge face different challenges and um, try to work on that um, differently. And I think that we could all benefit if we know if you if we knew what what the reality of others would be. Um, and that's why we just wanted to to share that and to show that and to ask you what. Um, maybe for for first first question to ask you uh what in your country what what bugs you the most what is what is at the moment the thing that doesn't let you sleep in healthcare or education or maybe andres do you want to start sure so I think uh, it's very important what you're doing to, to uh, bring us all together and to learn from each other. As a fellow, I remember what bugged me most was uh, that we uh, read the same papers as everybody in high-income countries. We read a lot of papers from the US and Europe and Asia, but get to practice in a very different reality. So there's very uh, difficult to bring what is written in high income countries to the realities in Latin America and very challenging to do that. Like um, for example, transplants are, are done very differently. Uh, here, for example, just to bring one example is viral monitoring. So we uh, don't have nearly what is described as a standard in, in the international high income country community. And we often do, for example, empirical uh, treatment for CMV because the turnaround time is very long. So you cannot read about that anywhere. So these type of situations that are very common for us, that is very difficult to find in the literature. So that's still what bugs me most. And in what country do you, are, you, are you situated just uh, for, for all of them? Yes. We're, I am in, in Mexico, and here's also my colleague, Perla Colunga. We are both uh, junior faculty in Monterrey, Mexico, in the northeast part of the country. Okay. 
And how how do you, how many patients are you are you dealing with each day? How many patients are you treating? So usually in the institution, uh, we treat around uh, we do around fifty to sixty adult transplants per year, around thirty pediatrics. So it's almost a hundred per year. Uh, all indications, mostly on an insured population. So patients pay for almost everything out of pocket. You always have to have that in mind to know what to what to request, which drugs to prescribe, what tests to do on what can be avoided or what is uh, too much to ask for a person to, to cover. So we usually see uh, patients that are either undergoing the procedure or are in the clinic as a follow-up patients, as well as patients that are hospitalized. We are always on service and uh, do not have the access to uh, advanced practice practitioners, such as in the US or other countries where there's uh, nurse practitioners or physician assistants. We usually just have uh, the regular uh, internal medicine nurses and the residents, internal medicine residents, which help uh, the fellows do most of the heavy lifting, which is also a very big difference with other countries in which attendings are not there that much. And fellows get to choose and to uh, treat patients directly with a lot more responsibility. Okay, thank you. And uh, Rafaela in Brazil, what bugs you most? When it comes to think of it, I think right now, politics. Uh, we had a couple of unstable years here and uh, during elections and during COVID, um, I'm sure you all read about it. So uh, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very scared of what's to come. And we do have a, a universal healthcare. So uh, we, we need to the, we need the government to, to fund our transplants and to believe that healthcare needs this funding. So I, I don't know what, what's next to come. Uh, next year, we do have elections and this is, it, it's very unstable right now. So this makes me very anxious. I, I don't know what is it to come. We always need the, the government to fund our, our healthcare and to invest in our universities. So depending on the government, I, I don't know what, what's gonna happen next. So this, this scares me very much. Thank you. And um, Venezuela? Uh, well, I agree with Andres when he said that we do things different here in Latin America than in Europe or in other countries. And one thing that uh, bothers me the most here is that there are not enough hematologists working uh, with us. So we have a lot of patients to treat, not just at our transplant center, but at the hematology department as well. So that's something that really bothers me and cause some anxiety for me, especially for the next year. So I would say that really shocks me or bothers me the most. 
Okay, um, I see Yasmina is here. Um, maybe we, we give our uh, impression to, to see what, what the differences are and then maybe we, we, we share um, your, your interact on your, um, what you think about other problems and do you share them or, and, and maybe we find some ways we, we can even improve them or uh, we share our insecurity about how we would deal with that. So Yasmina, what is, what, what is your most difficult situation you face at the moment or you? I would say in my situation, uh, at this point, I'm a young attending. I just finished my training and I'm going to start and I, I am specialized in transplant. I want to do this as a career. Uh, but still in academia, you need to perform, you need to care for your patients, but you need to publish, you need to, to somehow build up a research program. Otherwise, you cannot work on your patient, your patients, and also your patient, like uh, I'm passionate about what I do. So that's mainly my challenge now is to be able to stay in academia. Uh, so developing my projects and also this needs money and this is frustrating like yeah how to find the money to to keep going in academia and um, because if I have to move in another center I won't be able to to work with transplant patients with which would be a pity for me so that's my challenge right now and we should mention maybe the others don't know you from the last meetings but you just uh moved from Canada back to yeah. Netherlands. Yeah, I was I was working as a fellow in Canada and now I'm back to Europe. So I'm Belgian, but I'm working, I will work as soon as my paperwork is done in the Netherlands. Okay, thank you. And um, Lars from Denmark. Yes, hi everyone. Nice to meet you and nice that you're all here to share. Uh, your experiences. Um, so I'm a, I'm a hematology and BMT trainee currently doing uh, full-time research in between my training. And uh, I would say my, the, the things that's, that concerns me or would concern the field of BMT in Denmark is that we're struggling a little bit with recruiting people into the field. Um, we're a small country of almost 6 million people and uh, Hematology in itself is a very small field within medicine and, and BMT is not that generally well known of. Uh, so the recruitment base is, is small and we, uh, we struggle with, uh, with finding the, the right candidates for the, the, this particular niche. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what I'm already thinking about that now, uh, who, who are going to be my colleagues uh, in, a, in, a, in a very small community. Thanks. And um, Claire from the UK. Is she there? Claire, you're on mute. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. So I'm based here in the UK and have um, worked in a few different centers. Um, paediatrician by background but as part of our hematology training we have to rotate and spend a few years working in um, in the adult setting and I think um, some of the big things at the moment um, the fact that hospitals as I imagine everywhere are, are really overstretched and when you're bringing in complex transplant patients 
as more and more treatments and, and things like CAR-T become more accessible, uh, these aren't simple patients. These are, these are long-stay, complicated patients who develop other complications and, and they um, demand a lot of healthcare resources. That then means they're long-stay patients, which um, takes up beds for the rest of the population. And at a time when like healthcare resources are so stretched, I think it's like trying to get the balance right between offering people who might have treatments available, um, the treatments that may benefit, may cure them, may help them, may extend their life, uh, be that adult or, or children, against the needs of like the wider healthcare economy and, and how to get that balance right without completely overwhelming the system so that it all just crumbles around us. Yeah, thanks. Um... For me, it's uh, it's also quite the same. I never thought I, I would say that because mostly I, th I thought it would be yeah too cliche to to say that in 2021 or 2000 uh, or 2020. But for me now in Germany in Hamburg, um, we didn't really feel the the pandemic to be honest last year, but now it's it's crushing, and it's quite quite disturbing because uh, when you're a trainee you you have other issues when you just start out you want to learn you want to to uh, like dig deep in, into yeah into his patient histories and um, but the stress level is, is quite enormous and then you appreciate what you felt in medical school where you didn't have any duties and you just learned stuff and you read stuff and you thought, yeah, I know it. Then you come to, to the hospital and you see, okay, knowing and doing stuff quite a difference. And, and that's what I want to figure out. But at the moment, there are some moments I can't because I, there are other issues where we cannot really um, take patients because we don't have uh, beds to spend or um, yeah, other issues. And the other thing that uh, bugs me, and that's why I think it's it's really, this one is really important that, that we meet and, and share is that I think um, as long when, when the COVID pandemic will go on and we will like face uh, the first uh, plateau of the hilarious experience of connection through virtual platforms, but I think especially for trainees, it, there will be a, a downside to it where, we, where you cannot experience direct communication and see each other in the eye and see what, how they react and what they really think. Because in, in virtual reality, you can always say stuff and uh, somehow get around what, what you really mean. And I think that's really important for, for trainees to see experienced physicians handling tough situations or see other places how how does it look like and um, that's what we what what me bugs the most at the moment um but um maybe let's let's go through through each topic um and i completely get andre's point um and i as 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 one thing and that would be a question for you all is because when you say you cannot monitor CMV, for me as a trainee and transplant, I just think, okay, uh, 
what do you do then? <laughs> I, I wouldn't really uh, know what to do because I always look at the CMV level and say, yeah, that's now, now I have to treat this patient and without really focusing on the clinic or other questions. Um, yeah, Andres, what, what do you do about it? How, how, do, you, how do you teach uh, or how do you talk to, to your experienced physician or how do you do, deal with it? So you learn to prescribe it empirically. It really depends on the type of transplant. We've learned to, to detect it and to treat it clinically, especially with the use of the Haplo platform. Nearly, there's a lot of CMV in Mexico. So most Mexicans are CMV positive as in the rest of Latin America, I imagine. So uh, practically, you know, a patient on day 30 after a Haplo with PTSI that develops a fever, but is otherwise fine. Uh, then you gotta, if, if the counts are good, you gotta suspect CMV. If you get a long turnaround time, then you gotta start that valgancyclovir. Uh, you start treating the patient because you cannot wait to see if they develop an organ damage or, or a, a disease. So you learn to do a lot of stuff like that with antifungals and, you know, with lack of resources through experience. And there's, a, you know, a learning curve that you need to to do and to walk that can nobody can teach you, but then you can learn from other colleagues. I see Alfredo here who has been with us in our institution and can tell you more about what he experiences. And I think that is a very useful thing to do to, to go elsewhere and to learn from somebody that is in a situation that is similar as yours. And, and I get completely the comment by Rafaela that we are, uh, dependent on the local politicians' whims, as we are in Mexico, there's uh, uh, something that is similar to what you, Nico, and Claire are feeling with regards to the resource availability, that in other systems locally, there is a long line of people that need to get a transplant, but are not getting it because of, of the environment, either the social, the political, environment and uh, they need to choose and pick patients and allocate the resources that are so few uh, and so many who need them. So this is a, a shared feeling between many trainees that do transplant locally. Alfredo, do you want to, to comment on that? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we, we have almost the, the same environment between the Latin American countries. So uh, we learn to treat them empirically, as Sandra said. Uh, we don't lack the, the, the contact with the patient, but we don't have the, the funds to treatment uh, right. We, we, can, we, can, we can give uh, uh, maintenance to many patients or adequate prophylaxis, uh, fungal prophylaxis, or, or even treat with uh, gancyclovir, we have much problem uh, getting those kinds of, of uh, medicine in our, our patients. And the main problem is the, the access gap we have in, in our countries. We have like 50 or 80 patients waiting in the waiting list. So we have to choose carefully which ones are the best uh, are, are going to survive the, the haplo transplant or which to choose. That's the, the, the main problem, right? The, the patient with three lines of treatment in, in 
immunoreceptor disease negative or the one with in the first line with a with a allogenic uh, uh, donor. So th that's the main problem. We have uh, limited resources, so we have to choose carefully which ones to treat and which not. And that's the main problem. And in that situation, um, do you are you also faced with this with the decision um, that you need to like consider? Okay, shall I take the one with a better predicted outcome? Yeah, and it's it's something you you learn with the time. Uh, which which ones have the better possibilities to survive, and which sadly you you, you can treat or you don't have to. Okay, and um, about accessibility, um, you mentioned gancyclovir as first line, um, so I imagine you do not have any lisamovir <laughs> on hand. For no, uh, even even foscarnet it's a problem to, to get oh. it. So, so we we have to no, don't even imagine uh, thinking you have a, a resistant gancyclovir CMB. That's impossible to treat, or, or doing the the resistant genes. We don't have access to those. Or even in, in multiple myeloma, we, we can do fish. So we don't have, we, we don't know which ones to do a, an aggressive treatment or which ones just the trample with the maintenance treatment. Okay. Uh, what about the other countries, Brazil and Venezuela? Do you experience the same? Uh, yes, we do have the same, uh, a very similar situation. And we, you ask, how do we do? Well, I think we do magic or something like that. And we have to rely a lot in our clinical skills uh, before asking some to some test or something. And we rely on our, our clinical skills and our experience and our center's experience what are the most frequent infections or complications. And if we have like a little suspect that this patient is going to present that complication, we treat it as fast as we can. So I don't know, we do magic or something like that. And Rafaela, what do you feel? Yeah, we, we do have limited access to a lot of drugs. Uh, I don't, we do not have Foscarnet here in my, in my hospital, only in, in private hospitals. Uh, Sidofovir, we do not have also. So we, we have to deal with these this complications. And I don't know. I don't know how we do it, but it, it, I don't know. It, it, we just manage. It's like it's not even impossible. So we, we learn to, to adapt. But. Yeah, I mean, I imagine the 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 situation as as Alfredo said is um, across the the question. So CMV, for instance, because it's transplant, is just an example of yes. the situation you face. Um, so we, one que one question would be, um, how because Andres uh, mentioned it, you we all face like the publications guidelines. Uh, how do you teach that? How, 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 how are you presented with the evidence that you need to balance with reality? So, 
Yes, uh, it is hard. We 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 do have the PCR for 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 some virus, so this is not a problem to detect. But it comes a time when you the gancyclovir does not work and the patient it's getting worse and we know what to do we learn what to do but uh, sometimes it, we try to to do some magic and to borrow from the 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 hospital that has and try to exchange some drugs that we have that they need uh, I don't know sometimes we we do some uh, funding and some Honestly, depending on the price, uh, the residents, everyone gives a little money and we try to buy something for this patient. So it's, I don't know, we, it's, every day we have a problem that we need to solve. Sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's hard, but uh, the focus is always on the patient. So we make it happen. <laughs> and uh, another example is the VOD. And we, I am a pediatric bone marrow transplant fellow, so we do have a lot of VOD, especially in the primary immunodeficiency. And we, we only treat it with steroids. And the febrotide is not, it's not available. So, but we're seeing uh, that it's, it's kind of working. Our patients are responding. So when you don't, do not have the drug, maybe you, try to find something that also works and nobody's looking. So I don't know, it's, it's a daily struggle, but it, we need to make it happen for the patient. And also we do have a long wasting, uh, waiting list, especially for, for the adult patients. Pediatrics, not that much long. We, we manage to, to feed this, these patients that are high priority, like, the immunodeficiencies, but we do in my hospital, the line is up to uh, May to, uh, to, from 2022. It's, so we have a long list of waiting patients to transplant, but I don't know, it's, it's what we do every day and a new struggle and some, something we need to make it happen for these patients because there's no way, <laughs> no way out. And how do you prioritize? What's your selection? Um, it's uh, primarily the immunodeficiencies because they, the, the mortality rates are gigantic. So every time some, someone calls, hi, I, I think I have a patient that is a skip patient. Can, can you fit in? We look at our lines and see how this patient, uh, I don't know, this patient has Fanconi anemia, but he's stable, he's only transmuting. So we push it forward and fit on our, our, our unit. So it's everyday basis. We, we look at our list and our priorities and make, make it happen. But we really need more beds and we really need more, um, more physicians and we need more funding, so this is where we where we are at. So you also have, well, uh, maybe the others can can comment because there are so many like differences. And uh, what you just mentioned, we you can like open a whole new discussion about politics that you all mentioned is a big problem. 
Um, and that's maybe a huge thing. Maybe you, you all can elaborate on that, what you mean about that, but because I think that that is definitely a thing maybe Claire can, can mention it because politics in, in UK and, and healthcare is maybe more correlated. But in Germany, we don't have that. It's, there is a healthcare system and yeah, people get sick and get treated and you, you don't really conflict that with, with politics. We don't see that. Uh, we don't know actually what you mean by that. So maybe you can see, do you, uh, you try to, to finance things by yourself or do you go as a hospital, do you go to, to the mayor or something and, and ask for help or do you, how do you, how do you get funded? So uh, we do have a universal health care, but it's uh, severely underfunded. So we do not have uh, enough staff. Uh, sometimes the, my hospital is a federal hospital, so we need to report to the federal government and the funding comes straight from the federal. Uh, so, but we are underfunded, so the hospital do not have uh, enough money to buy everything it needs, so it sometimes needs to prioritize. And we have a list of uh, available uh, medicine in uh, in the universal healthcare. So if if you need something that is not available, your hospital needs to buy, but it does not have the money to. So we need to uh, sometimes ask for for the community sometimes it's you have to go to the law so if you if we have a universal health system you need to have universal health care and this patient needs everything <laughs> you don't you cannot limit the drugs he needs or doesn't so we go to the law and and sometimes it takes one two three months to to get the the medicine this patient needs so it's I don't know it's so it's something that it's so natural to me that it, you, you don't actually think, remember that other countries do not have these problems and it's so unnatural to you when I talked about it so uh, it's part of our uh, being a physician in Brazil and in the universal health care that we have that is the SUS uh, to deal with this this kind of things that we do have things we do not have and how to how to acquire them and how to negotiate negotiate for this patient needs uh, so when we talk about government funding uh, there's uh, the government decides which part of the country deserves more investment and sometimes it's healthcare sometimes it's uh, education sometimes the money just goes away <laughs> and we are underfunded for a very long time so uh, we do not hire new physicians very often and nurses are understaffed so it's it, I think it, it is a chronic problem and we, we we manage the the way we can and I think we do a lot of great things uh, here in Curitiba, that is my, my country. We do about uh, nine, 90 uh, children's uh, pediatric transplants a year, and we have a lot of uh, excellent outcomes, but it, it's, very, it's very stressing dealing and having to work and having to 
like you publish and um, trying to trying to study and also worrying about uh, whether this patient will have or will not have the the drug he needs i i don't know how to how to to put it i i think i should give you an example i this will make it um more easy for you to understand. So I have this skid patient that developed a PTLD. And we do not, we do have a rituximab, but not for this kind of patient. We only have for patients treating first line lymphoma. So when I ask the hospital, uh, can you get, can I can I prescribe this patient? They say no. It's uh, for this kind of disease, the SUS, the healthcare, do not pay for it, so you cannot prescribe. So I spent uh, about a month uh, and trying to negotiate. It, it was a small patient, so uh, the uh, we had a lymphoma patient that used half a bottle, so we we had the other half. So that's that weekend I could treat the patient, but the next weekend I didn't have. So it's it's a struggle, and we we have to deal. And after a while, we just ask for the. There are a lot of communities that help uh, help our patients. So we ask for them to pay for a couple of, of doses, and we could treat this patient after after this. So there was a bottle of rituximab in my hospital but it was not available for my patient and it was a struggle and was very stressful wow yeah yeah, yeah, yeah maybe you know? just to yeah just to go on on your initial question on how politics can influence or how when as a physician how and when do you have to deal with politics? Of course, it's, it has nothing to do and it's not comparable with what Rafael had just told us. But for example, in Canada, uh, they have a system a bit uh, similar to UK. And for example, they uh, cannot have access to MRD in AML. So imagine all the papers as well, all the recent evidence and the standards uh, you have to take treatment decisions based on MRD and in Montreal as as, um, as of 2021 you cannot do it just because you know they are in the process of negotiating with the payer to afford this of course they can do it they have the technology that's not the point but uh, it's not funded yet so yeah as a physician you it's maybe it's not politics because political system is stable in Canada, but it's somehow how you have to deal with public economy um, as a physician. And this can also happen in so-called high income countries. Yeah, and the question even is, um, well, um, as, as Rafaela put it, uh, yeah, nicely and tragically is uh, where does it stand where does it end because we are all facing like new therapies and new techniques we talk about mrd which kind of level do you measure uh, which technique is it fax or is it piece is it next generation sequencing and um that's uh 
Yeah, what, what, what bugs me is the vocabulary. So we, we talk about all these alternatives, but the alternatives are not real in, in so many situations. So what do we talk about then? Uh, and the, the questions you all face are quite basic. And that's uh, why I think it's, it's so important because um, that's what trainees think about is not the what can be, but what, yeah, what, how is it? What, what can I do now? Uh, and what should I do now? And that's what you are facing all, all the time. Um, well, uh, the, what when when you when you see, let's say, a patient that comes to you uh, with AML um, um, in Mexico, Venezuela, Brazil, uh, Peru. What what's what's the first step? So you you what what do you think about? You think about okay, how can I realize this, or uh, you you think okay, I cannot talk about it because we our list goes to May two thousand twenty two, and so what that that's what what I keep asking is okay, what because the the diseases they don't wait until May. What do you do? How how do you deal with that? How do you do you say to them wait at home or well, well, yeah we just pray we have to pray mm. there is nothing more so we, we try to do the best uh, like uh, doing the HLA, HLA uh, before the time or trying to wait as much as possible with the patient who can, who can wait uh, so we have to accommodate the, the waiting list or maybe trying to do the best in categorizing the patients if 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 you can in the center you work uh, maybe it's it's possible to do an autologous transplant or maybe just chemotherapy uh, you have to find a way that it's easier for the patient and it's accessible for them i think uh, we need to find ways around these uh, problems and try not to uh, imitate sometimes what cannot be done outside of the context where it is designed, for example. And uh, at least in my institution, uh, there is no waiting line. And the reason behind that is that we do not uh, wait for a, a bed to transplant patients. We do uh, outpatient transplantation. That's, that has been the way to solve the issue. As many of you know, most uh, transplant recipients just get uh, hospitalized while they are doing well. They come walking to the hospital. You can do a Q24 hour conditioning. A lot of the hours that patients spend in the hospital, especially in the first days are very useless. So uh, similarly to the donors. So the way we have uh, solved that is to do everything outside. So if you do, if you do it that way, then you don't have to wait for a, a bed. Then you can start multiple transplants at the same time and try and limit the time that they spend in the hospital. So this uh, is one strategy to, to make the line shorter. And there's other things, uh, Rafaela just spoke about sharing drugs between patients. And there's this uh, rule, which is uh, kind of stupid, that you uh, have to use a single vial for a single patient, for a single dose, 
just because the drug company says you should. Uh, but if you do it in a clean room, under a hood, if you like, or do it carefully with a sterile technique, then there's no reason you can't uh, share drugs between patients. And we do that routinely as well. For example, with very important drugs such as plerixafor, of which there are no generics in Mexico. So we share this drug between patients. For, for kids, it's very easy because they usually uh, can do uh, leftovers from somebody else. We've done that with monoclonal antibodies that are very stable across time and so on. So this type of strategies to do something new to solve the problems that we face is something that we uh, must just uh, do because the politics are not gonna be ever okay. Uh, we are not going to turn into uh, Germany or the United States magically. So this will remain so. So that means that we need to, to go away around it, to find alternatives. And that's where research comes in, in creativity, you know, it's, uh, they say uh, necessity can bring about a lot of, of inventions and a lot of, of solutions. Andres, um, sorry, I did, I joined a little bit late. I'm Alexandra Gomez. I'm actually from Colombia originally, but moved to the US and work here at Cornell University. But Latin America is very close to my heart. I still work with a lot of people there. Uh, Andres, I love your work. So I wanted to talk to you more about that. How, how, what type of transplants are you doing outpatient? And is there any conditioning that you do not do inpatient, that you do not do outpatient? And what's your, just a little bit more on that, because I think it's so interesting for the rest of the world as well to start thinking about it. I think in the US we spend a lot of resources that are not, should not be wasted like we do. Thank you, Alexandra. Uh, so we, we started using reduced intensity conditioning, which is something that is relatively easy to do outside. Uh, but we have done practically all types of, of allos outside, including PTSI haplos. So there's not a lot you can't do uh, with Q24 conditioning. There's challenges. We are working on developing a, a TVI regimen that can be done outside as well. Uh, but you can, you just need to, to learn uh, how to and to develop a team that can uh, treat patients that are so available 24 hours a day, caregivers that are always there, that are trained. Patients need to be close to the hospital and you need to have a place in the hospital so that they don't have to be walking you know, all to different places to get the labs and the drugs and the office visit, try to give everything together. And I think there's a, a lot of, practically a lot of ways. And, and there's another issue that is the availability of conditioning drugs and technologies to treat patients. For example, TBI is, is something that historically has been an issue in Mexico. Most conditioning, even in ALL is done with chemotherapy. It's only a few places that can offer it, as well as other very important drugs that are recently relevant, such as thiotepa uh, for primary CNS lymphomas and so on. There's a big uh, shortage of, uh, or unavailability of carmostine, 
of BC and U. So that means that we need to do alternative conditioning regimens for patients with lymphoma, some that may or may not be similar to BIM or equally in, in efficacy. And sometimes uh, it's difficult to get IV melphalan, so you need to do oral medications. We do not have uh, intravenous uh, calcineurin inhibitors, so you need to use oral TACRO and oral MMF. So that's easy because since we do it outpatient, we would do that anyway. So, and this type of, of things that you need to adjust to, to have it done, transfusions as, as outpatients as well, and also the availability to, to put patients in the hospital and to have them avoid the ER, which is full of patients that have other things, including, uh, but not limited to COVID and so on. So we, we do, and there's a, a lot of publications about that that uh, we've worked on and, and much yet to, to try and to do. And how, how, how is it um, in other countries? Um, do you also do uh, many at-home transplants in Brazil or Venezuela or Peru? Yes, uh, we have tried, so we have managed some patients, some outpatients out or some myeloma patients. Uh, and we had very good experience with those patients. And just a few complications that were handled at home. And even once we tried to treat a patient with a lymphoma that received being, and she was handled like, a, like an outpatient. And I think because her parents were doctors and they kind of like built like an intensive care unit in their house with a private nurse and everything. And one of the doctors of the transplant team uh, went to visit the patient in her house and we were in contact, but that's the only patient with a, that received a very aggressive protocol that we handled at home. And, but for the rest, we have some very good experience. And for the waiting list, where I'm not in charge of that, but we have just a few beds available at our center. And well, sometimes it's difficult, uh, well, the way we, we decide who gets first is the patient that uh, gathers all the medication that we ask that's how we choose who goes first to transplant. The first who, who gets everything, that's the first. We do not do uh, usually the outpatient transplants. It's not something we're used to, but I'm interested. <laughs> it seems like it, it, it could help us to, to decrease our line. But we do have we do treat a lot of the, a lot of the post transplant complications uh, outpatient because we we're always at at the capacity so uh, we discharge a patient the next day we started another conditioning so when we have a patient that has some kind of post transplant complication there is no bed to to admit him so we do treat a lot of uh, uh, post transplant complications in the in the clinic, the outpatient. I think that's definitely a, a difference between between all of us. 
um, because, uh, for instance, uh, in Germany, um, if I would uh, tell uh, my chief to do an out, outpatient or at-home uh, allogenic transplant, I think he wouldn't really understand what I'm talking about. Um, and that's why uh, we, we all also implemented um, in our e-learning um, platform um, now uh, presentations on outpatient uh, at home autologous allogenic and even CAR T transplant because that's where what I heard of the first time in the US that uh, CAR T's or in Spain that CAR T therapy is done uh, most at home or at home from hotel let's say and that brings me to to the next question is um, when you look at the simple uh, map of Latin America, you notice that the countries are much bigger than your own in Europe. And um, at home transplant, then comes the question, okay, which patients do you treat? Do you treat patients locally in, in, your, in your city? Or do people have access from a rural area and come to you and uh, stay at, at aunts or hotels or how do how do you manage that or do you then just treat people in your like near nearest area uh, no most of our patients comes i come from other states outside the city and they ask to move to the city to rent a house or whatever and just stay there and during the transplant and after the patient is discharged from the transplant center must remain in the city for at least another one or two months after that the patient if there are no complications is referred again to the treating hematologist and can go back to their hometowns but most of our patients come from around the country because in Venezuela, there are only two centers, one here in Valencia where I work and where I live, and the other one is in Caracas. And most of our patients, as I said, come around the country. Yeah, Lars, you want to? Yeah, I just want to say, I really like the comment about doing magic and I can understand now why you, why you feel that way. And, but I'm interested in just asking how, how do you build like an evidence-based uh, approach of, of, uh, of uh, managing uh, complications or, or issues in, 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 when resources are restrained? Um, I read a publication recently, I think you were involved also, LABMT, on, on how to manage aplastic anemia in, in resource-constrained uh, countries. Do you think this is a good idea way forward or and, and do you have other platforms for sharing knowledge about uh, how to do uh, yeah day-to-day uh, -day, uh, clinical decisions uh, when you when you don't have the um, uh, the same um, uh, things available as as you would read in the literature or in other guidelines Who wants to answer? <laughs> so I, I love your question about, is there somewhere we can ask? And the, the answer is no, not yet. But in a globalized world, I think this is coming. And this is a meeting is an example of it. So we can get together, you know, Twitter is a great resource to find these type of things and not just for us, but for everybody around the world to ask 
you know, when you get the rare complication or the rare event to see if anybody has dealt with that before, I think we, we should uh, be uh, closer. The LABMT is a great uh, resource for that. It's a young society that is up and coming that will surely be very important for these issues in the future. And uh, I think there is a uh, uh, a lot of opportunities in this uh, space for moving forward. I'm not sure if anybody, I usually just ask, you know, more experienced physicians around and try and see you know, other uh, friends from other parts of the country and from other, other countries to, to talk about them and talk, talk about specific issues. But, you know, the internet is, is changing everything. But we do publish some, some of our experience and our data we, we do have here in Curitiba a lot, and in Brazil, um, a lot of things published about treating aplastic anemia and, and other diseases. So it, it, it generally comes from a place of need, like I, I do not start doing things outpatient or or something like that and because I want it, but because I need. And it comes a time when you see, oh, we did it for 50 patients and it's working. Let's gather the data and, and prove it that it's working. So it's, it's generally works like this. It comes from a place of need, but it works. The magic works and we, we then share it to the world. Uh, well, like in, in our center, we don't have like a data yet. We are working on that. But as Rafaela said, well, uh, most of, of the things we do rely, uh, depends on the availability of, of resources and from the other doctor's experience. It's not like we have like a handbook or something to handle many things because we don't have most of the medications that are needed. But we are working in our data, data, and one day, well, I hope we can share our experience with all of you because everybody has a different experience. Uh, maybe this brings me to, to a follow-up question because um, usually that um, when you talk about access of new therapies, for instance, um, you think about, okay, can I include this patient into a trial, for instance? And this would be another difference in equality that companies are not really fond of expanding their trials. They mostly concentrate themselves on US or even EU, but mostly US. Uh, what, what is the, do you, do you guys participate actively or do you in, have the opportunity in, to include patients into trials or do you need to fight for it? Do you actively ask? Uh, people to get into, or what, what's your experience with that? Uh, well, we don't have clinical trials in Venezuela, and so zero experience in that. Which is a statement by itself. Yeah. Here, here wow. we have the same problem. It's very difficult. Uh, we have one or two per year. Uh, 
if we have a patient, we have to try to ask a, a contact abroad to to send them there or a friend who's working in another hospital in another country. But it's very difficult to to try to enroll enlist them in in a clinical trial. Even in in transplant, it's more difficult. Uh, clinical trials are rare in pediatrics in general. So when you talk about clinical trials in pediatrics in Brazil, it's even even more rare. Uh, in adults, we do have a few, but it, it's always located in these universities and big centers. So we have to refer our patients to to their city to that site. So when you have a patient that is relapsed or refractory. And it, it's difficult for, for us to, to suggest they should move to another city to try to enter a clinical trial. But it, it's, it's not our reality. It's very rare. We're not used to, to that. And um, maybe um, regarding the current problems do you do you feel any like obviously okay we all feel there is change going around and pressure etc but how how is it mostly felt in in your uh, environment is there are there problems that are uh, more aggressive now through the pandemic or are there new issues you need to face are there exacerbating issues what what's your experience with like over the last two two years with the with the problems you already faced what what became more and more viral let's say or problematic well like in other countries most of the resources are destined to that covid areas and other thing that also bothers us is that for example, at, in our hospital, all the residents from other services have to uh, work at the COVID areas. And that's something that affects, and even last year as a resident, I had to work in the COVID areas and that was, that bothers me a lot. And the residents this year have to work at the COVID areas. And that's something that affects uh, affects us really badly. You're muted. Yeah, just go on. Just mm -hmm. <laughs> sorry. Well, I think we we are at a bit at a bit at a I'm sorry, at a better place right now uh, on COVID here in Brazil. We have a lot of people that are fully vaccinated. But last year, it was a big challenge. I, I, I also had to work at the COVID area. I'm thankful that the only, the only specialty that did not uh, turn into a COVID area was the transplant. So our of course, we had problems regarding uh, transplanting in the in the COVID. Uh, we had patients that were positive, donors that were positive, and 
it was very stressful and of course the 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 referral of patients and diagnostics was a problem but if, i think right now we are at a better moment here in brazil because of the vaccination and the hospital my my hospital was almost uh, in the entire hospital was a covid unit everything turned into a covid unit we have i believe uh, 600 uh, beds for covid and it it was full and right now it's it's feeling that it's something that is coming back to normal and i'm very thankful but i don't know i think it 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 gave a little bit more money to the public health care even though it was destined to covid we could benefit because uh, we got new respirators and ventilators and so it's and it, it made uh, everyone remember how important is the healthcare system and i think we're getting past this right now yeah, that would be a direct uh, follow-up question. Maybe then also for you, Andres, is uh, because you nodded. And my, uh, that was our experience also in Germany, maybe on, an, on another level. But uh, COVID showed you that there seems to be no issue of money, right? You, you, we have the money to spend, actually. And for instance, here in Germany, we have this uh, famous Charité Viro Virology um, Institute, who now receives like millions of millions of euros for 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 research in 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 Germany and all all the other hospitals think oh, well what what why and, and and all because all the years we heard yeah there is we we need to cut money in the research institutions and now there is money and this is a particular issue for for you guys because i i believe you you Almost every time here, yeah, we cannot like, for instance, spend our vaccination programs or, or uh, produce enough uh, vaccines for, for other countries. Um, we don't have the money yet. You, you do have it. It's just, a, I, I believe, I don't know whether it's true, but it's just a matter of infrastructure and will. Actually, I don't know. What, what do you think, Andres, Rafaela, Laura? I agree, uh, particularly uh, in our context, there was this fund to provide uh, transplants for uninsured patients. Uh, when I was a fellow, uh, uh, a person just needed maybe around a, a couple of thousand dollars to get a transplant done. Uh, and that was it, you could do it. So practically all people could have a transplant done. This fund was uh, um, destroyed by the current administration and its resources done for X or Y projects that are the president's interest and were just on a whim uh, disappeared from the, the, the purse. On the other hand, this, uh, when the pandemic came, so a lot of resources, a lot of hospitals started showing up everywhere, a lot of, of respirators and a lot of investments. And uh, just when a couple of years ago, we had to tell people with acute leukemia that were not ensured that they had to find around $20,000 or, or $15,000 to get a transplant, which is still uh, very uh, cheap in the global terms. But for a person who is a 
you know, a single parent who works at a single job, that uh, amount of money surpasses what they make in a year or a couple of years. It's something that is crazy to ask for a person to pay. It's very overwhelming. And I think that brings us to an important point that I wanted to address, that is that we need uh, something very different maybe in the curriculum of uh, training is that I'm not sure, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that clinical research is somewhat expected in, in high-income countries. You, you need to be in a project and you are expected maybe to publish or to, uh, if you want to get a job in academics, to, to grant, to get a grant, as, as Jasmina was, was discussing. Uh, but here, uh, most uh, it doesn't equal uh, a fellowship experience or a degree in hematology or a fellowship in bone marrow transplants. You don't really need to learn anything about clinical research. You can learn to do transplants and that's it. So this is a very uh, um, important point because people can become BMT docs without the tools to research and to uh, you know, interrogate and to communicate what we are doing and the, the novel things we do maybe that go unnoticed because it, it doesn't ever get published. So I think there is a very big need in, in uh, gaining mentors and which now can be obtained internationally. Uh, you can find a mentor even if it's not in your institution that can give you the tools. There are many resources that can be accessed by trainees worldwide that don't need, you don't even need to be in your country. So I think there is a, a huge opportunity to educate uh, fellows in that sense, which sometimes is lacking across institutions. So we can provide the new generation with tools that were not available for, for uh, some of us. I, I was fortunate to access a couple of courses and meet a lot of people from around the world, such as yourself, uh, Nico, and uh, now uh, can say that it uh, kind of opens your, your mind a little bit and gives you some fuel to try and work out these issues uh, together. I don't know if my colleagues feel, feel the same. Yes, yes, I completely agree. Uh, research is something that it's secondary in our training, but um, I think we, we are we are getting there even even we have a lot of difficulties. I I gather data after after my hours. I I have this pile of charts and, and do everything I can so we can show the world what, what we can do. Uh, I think this talk uh, isn't intended for, for you to feel sorry for us. Uh, like Andrew said, we we are uh, we will not become a higher income country anytime soon. It, it will take a while for us to get there, but we are very proud of what we do here. And we want to collaborate with, with EBMT and with everyone so we can uh, show you what we do best and you can show us what we do best and we can make even greater things. So I think the, the point uh, for me here to collaborate is not for, for, for it to be unilateral. We want, to, we want to collaborate with you very, very much. You show us 
what you can do and you show us what we can do and make this even better. Absolutely. And I think uh, on the contrary to what you said, we can, uh, from as much as what you might gain from clinical trials and hearing about what other developments are going on in the research setting. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, we can gain as much, if not more, from you guys. I think uh, the discussions we've had um, just today have been eye-opening for, well, certainly myself, and I'm sure um, the others working in Europe and the States will probably agree um, that I think we've got so much we can gain from each other through working together and hearing about how it, how it works in different places. I completely agree, and and I I, I uh, share the um, the feeling, and I'm impressed by the power you have. To be honest, because that's that's the feeling I really have. I'm really early in my training, and I believe that uh, you can get um, you you need without being uh, taking cliche, but you need to to think practically and if you don't do that you're not good and you're not not really um taking the the whole risk and taking good care of your patients and um if you if you're all living in this kind of already looking at the next publication and the next science and we all we all see we we have access to internet and we see how much bullshit let's say is out there in science but if you're if you're triggered by career, by success, by always getting to Harvard, to uh, whatever European centers, and you, you want to do go the next right step, and then you 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 get lost in in this kind of like eagerness to be the best, or you you don't look at the bottom and see okay what's the problem I face and how do I solve it. And, and you guys do it every day, what we cannot imagine. And I cannot, I cannot imagine I, I would be completely lost in your situation. And that's not a cliche, that's the, the reality. And that's why I think we need to like share this and not, re not only share it, but show it and see what, what can be improved in, in, in your reality what needs to be improved in our reality because there is a lot a lot out there in the us in germany in the uk wherever where where things can be improved with your help because i think especially the the for instance the at home transplant we all can benefit from that approach and we need to learn from you how it's done right and um that's only one thing so um yeah this could be could go on on and on, and um, we would be really really grateful if we could maybe make that uh, a usual thing, to to maybe do that with maybe this the first time was a quite general approach where we all would like to ask many many questions and we we would get lost, but maybe we do that make that a usual thing maybe with a specific topic we want to address. And and or and you can share your ideas you want to create, and maybe the next time, Andres, as you said, with the LABMT trainee committee or trainee society, whatever, 
So we would like to yeah, collaborate in the next weeks, months to come uh, with you guys. Really, would be really, really grateful and happy to collaborate. Definitely, let's do it.